So we'll be wrapping up, uh, Lord willing, the, Paul's letter to the Philippians uh, next Lord's Day. And he's kind of given sort of a rapid succession of, of commandments and principles that we're supposed to follow, understanding uh, that those who are under the grace of Jesus also should walk in that grace and obedience. Uh, and as he's closing out here, he's, he's told us some, so, some really challenging commands here. One of all is to rejoice all of the time. Rejoice always. That's, that's quite a tall order in many ways. Then he says, never be anxious. And of course, those two are connected, are they not? And now he's going to press home his command with, a, with a, even a, a greater challenge and following his own example. And that is to be content in everything. So we are never to, uh, we are to rejoice all the time, never to be anxious, and we are to be content in everything. But these three expectations that the Apostle Paul has that we can accomplish through the power of the Holy Spirit really unlock the treasure chests of blessing to be found in the Christian faith. Matter of fact, the Puritans were keen to call this principle a rare jewel. Jeremiah Burroughs in his book, Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. Again, we have some available for you in the narthex if you want to pick one up. He says this, Christian contentment, and listen to this definition and apply it to yourself. Christian contentment is that sweet, inward, quiet, grace-filled condition of spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly management in every condition. Who would not want that? We were saying goodbye to our grandson this week, and, and I held him, and he just relaxed on my shoulders. Oh, you know, kids love me because I look like Santa Claus. And that includes the grandchild. And, and it was amazing just holding him. And we were up on the veranda. We were two stories up and everything. And he just, you could just feel him. Like, That's what God wants of you, child of God. It's just to know God cares for you to be as content as a baby in his mother's arms no matter what. And our text today, I think, is going to help us to get there. May we learn this secret this rare jewel of Christian contentment. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we come before you with all of our grumblings, our anxieties, our lusts. And we put them on the altar before you and pray that you just burn them up and get rid of them. I pray, God, that we would love you so much and we would see you as so big, so wonderful, so powerful. That our concerns and our burdens would just pale in comparison that we would rest in your providence and enjoy the road to heaven. In Christ's name, amen. Please again turn to Philippians chapter 4. And we're going to look at verses uh, 10 through 13 this morning. Let me read those to you. God says, the apostle Paul writes, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am content. I know how to be brought low and how to abound in any in every circumstance. I have learned the secret of being of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. As we look at this uh, this text this morning, we have basically three components uh, uh, that we're going to look at, and you would probably be assisted to look at your home group helps insert. We're going to see concern revived in verse 10, 
contentment rightly considered in verses 11 through 12 and confidence in Christ in verse 13. So first of all, concern revive. Remember, uh, Paul writes this letter in a context of what's going on at the time. And it's important to know that context. And remember, Paul is in prison. He is in prison in Rome. He's under house arrest, chained to a prison guard. He has been in and out basically of jail other than transportation for four years. Uh, and he is writing this as part of that. Uh, and he is genuinely an, an, an innocent victim. He, in a sense, has been framed. It started off with a mob, and it started off with a bunch of politicking from Felix and the Romans in Caesarea. And now his case is before Caesar, and they're trying to figure out what to do with him. And if there was ever a church that loved Paul, and Paul knew it, the Philippian church, it would be this opportunity. He would take this opportunity to complain, to grumble. I can't believe the, the, how, how corrupt this system is. I can't believe those mean Jews that, that, that wanted me to, to be arrested and that kind of thing. This would have been his opportunity. And yet, what does he say? He just, he's rejoicing. He is content in that situation. He, because of, the, uh, and part of that is a response to what they've done for him. You remember, Philippians is the thank you letter. They have sent him a bountiful gift and he is rejoicing in the Lord greatly. And that's part of the secret here of contentness, being content. It's not happiness. It's easy to be happy when circumstances are going well, but most times circumstances don't go well. Happiness is a result of favorable circumstances, but true joy comes from the Lord. He is rejoicing in the Lord greatly and realizes we possess a favorable views of his working in our lives. A morose, self-pitying person, a person who is a victim of circumstance, resents God's hand of providence instead of embracing God's hand of providence, and he scorns God's way of dealing with them. A grand example of this is, is, uh, is Israel in the wilderness. They had been given everything. They were slaves. They were making bricks without straw in the heat of Egypt. And God sent the deliverer Moses and sent all these plagues in to show how much he loved them, but how much it would, it would cost the people who oppose his plan on planet Earth. And the Apostle Paul picks out and he starts talking about, he begins starting talking about the great benefits that the Israelis have. But then what happened in 1 Corinthians chapter 10? I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers who were under the cloud and all passed through the sea. And they were baptized into Moses in the cloud and the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and drank of the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock which followed them. The rock was Christ. And you think about it, every morning after passing through the Dead Sea, after seeing God supported them, after the angel of death passed over their houses and preserved them while they killed the firstborn of Egypt, after seeing this, the Red Sea part, after, after seeing how God provided for them in the wilderness, literally picking up the, their food every single day provided from heaven, following the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night, receiving God's ordinances, his laws from his own hand, all those advantages. And yet, Paul goes on to say, nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. So these things took place as examples for us. And he goes on to say, we must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now, these things happened to them as an example, but they were written for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. And then he says, therefore, let 
Anyone who thinks he stands, take heed lest he falls. Isn't this interesting? What, what he's really pointing out here, among other things, is grumbling. Grumbling is verbal discontentment. And they were literally, they were punished for grumbling, complaining. For this negativity that just seemed to consume them at the time and so often consumes us. Jude picks up on this theme in June 16. These are grumblers finding fault, following after their own lusts. Let me ask you, who, who was Israel finding fault with? God. God. They're, 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 they're blaspheming God. The word blasphemy actually means slander. But when it's directed towards God, it is blasphemy. So they're slandering God. You don't really mean everything you say in your Bible. We're going to grumble about that. But that Paul, not Paul, not the Philippians. They have learned to be content. And they have learned to rejoice in the Lord. Now, at length, you have revived your concern for me. Again, this is sort of personal business here. Uh, now, some people have said, well, it sounds like a rebuke. It sounds like Paul's kind of giving them a backhanded compliment here. Uh, but that's not the case. That's certainly not the tone of the Philippians. It's a thank you note. Epaphroditus had sent them some money. And remember here, their jail system is not like our jail system. I saw a statistic, well, it was probably 20 years ago, so it's probably a whole lot more, that each inmate costs taxpayers something like $75,000 a year. Well, how about this? How about if they just not commit crimes and we get to keep that? That doesn't happen, right? $75,000 a year. Well, guess what? Paul had to pay his own expenses. So think about here. Again, here's the situation. Talk about being tempted to be discontent. He's framed. He's in a kangaroo court system, and he's got to pay for his own expenses. He's got to pay for his own jail time. Well, the Philippians caught up with him in Rome and gave him this gift. So that all of his needs are now being met. And it's just a profound blessing. So he's trying to point that out. Their generosity. Now that generosity is going to be the focus of next week's sermon more. But the Philippians were characterized by generosity. And I think this is one thing. It's not just the money. Paul certainly appreciates the money. Food's a nice thing to have. But what he loves as the pastor, as the shepherd, is to see that kind of generosity as evidence of their growth in Christ Jesus. Um, non-Christians tend to not be generous. Christians tend to be generous to the point of sacrifice because they know that their God is honored by that. He picks up on this, uh, this thing uh, uh, you know, throughout uh, Scripture in so many ways. But speaking uh, of, to the Corinthians about the Macedonians, which, of course, Philippi was the most important city, he said this, For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, I can testify beyond their means, of their own free will, begging us earnestly, for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. You know, I've never, um, uh, our deacons go when they take the, the, the collection, they go and count it in the front office there. And I don't know that we've ever had a situation where someone starts banging on the door and saying, please, please take my tithe, you know, begging us to take their tithe, you know. Uh, I mean, that that that's the kind of thing that the Macedonians were doing there. Please, please, please take this money. Go help the poor people. And Paul's thinking, well, you're poor people. Yeah, yes. But we want to be part of this blessing as well. What a, what an otherworldly perspective that is that on the then against the, the greed of our of our age. 
So he celebrates their concern. Their concern is now revived here. Now, again, this is not a backhanded comment. It's just a statement of fact. If you track the relationship between Paul and the church of Philippi, you go back, it started in Acts chapter 16. And after he left Philippi, not on great terms with the civilian population there, he goes to Thessalonica, Berea, Athens, and then he goes to Corinth. And in Corinth, um, he said that the brothers came from Macedonia and supplied all my need in 2 Corinthians. Then he goes on to Ephesus, Caesarea in Judea, then Antioch, Galatians, and Ephesians, Corinth, and then back to Macedonia. So we pick up back in Philippi in Acts chapter 20. But after that, contact was lost, evidently. And that's really what he's pointing out here. They didn't know where he was. They might have had a particular difficult situation. They didn't have anybody to carry a gift or anything like that. But now their concern for him and, and their demonstration of that concern by giving him some money is revived. That, that word revived means it's blossoming again. Like, uh, like a flower that makes it through the winter and then comes back up in the spring. This is the way Paul is, uh, is seeing this great gift from the Philippians. And it, but he wants to qualify this point, too. So he's, he's being very polite and gracious when he says, you were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. And in effect, he's saying, I know that you would support me if you could have done so, but you couldn't because you couldn't find me. So he's giving them kind of a, he's being polite and gracious to them. Now we see here contentment rightly considered here. And this is sort of the, 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 the meat of where we want to go. He says here that, that I am not speaking of being in need. So he don't want to be misunderstood. He, he doesn't want to so emphasize their gift that makes it sound like he was, he was uh, lusting for it or, or that he was discontent in so many ways. So he kind of qualifies things a little bit. And he says here, I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. His situation is difficult to the extreme, and yet he's not discontent about it. I mean, this had to have had such an effect on the Praetorian guard who was guarding him, the people who were chained to him. I mean... They've never seen a happy prisoner. I mean, what's there to be happy about? And yet, Paul, they would come to, they would, they would do a, a shift change. They would go unchain everything. And there's Paul going, hello, Marcus. <laughs> How are you today? I mean, this just had to just had such an effect on them. And then they would go back and tell others in the barrack, have you seen Paul? What is with that guy? And eventually they found out what was with that guy. He had God's Holy Spirit. He had the gospel. He had been transformed. His hope was in heaven, not on this earth. So he can endure whatever situations that God has put him through. So, so basically, he knows whatever God has placed him, uh, he has a duty and a joy and a delight to be content. Now, this is interesting. Think about what does the word content mean? We sort of think of it in terms of how we apply it in our life. What does the word content mean? Well, in the original Greek, this word mean, actually meant self-sufficient. Self-sufficient. Uh, it would have been used in ancient writings to reference a country that was supplied by itself and had no need of imports. And it's interesting, Paul, again, is probably intentionally using this term because he's talking to a Greek-Roman culture here. The Stoic philosophers saw contentment, self-sufficiency, as the highest ideal of mankind. Uh, one Stoic line was, a man should be sufficient for himself to all things and able by the power of his will to re resist the force of circumstances. Of course, all the, the preppers and those who want to live off the grid are going, amen, you know. But it's not really, that's the Stoic philosophy, but that, as, we, as we see, there's going to be a Christian twist this, to the whole principle. The Stoic Seneca put it this way, the, the happy man is content with his present lot no matter what it is, 
and it's reconciled to his circumstances. But the stoic contentment was this idea of, a, of sort of a self-contained superman, a, 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 an independent, self-sufficient person. But almost by, by definition, that means you remove yourself from others. You protect from self from others. There's a self-focus right here, and that's not what Paul is talking about. He takes that word, but he has kind of a Christian spin to it. Because he's talking about a Christ-centered contentment. There's a transformation that occurs because of what Christ has done. He is content because he's worshiping Christ. And he's content because he's using that joy to serve others. Jeremiah Burroughs, again in his book, Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment, says this. In a strict sense, its meaning can only be attributed to God, who has called himself God all-sufficient. One of the Old Testament names of God. Because he rests fully satisfied in himself alone. But he is pleased to give this fullness to Christians. In this sense, Paul can declare himself to have self-sufficiency. This, of course, does not mean that anyone but God can be self-sufficient. But that Paul has found through satisfaction, thorough satisfaction, through the grace of Christ. So here's an when we think about the, the communicable attributes of God, those attributes of God that we can demonstrate, love, for instance, justice, for instance, mercy, for instance, uh, one of them also is self-sufficiency. So we can be so satisfied in God's self-sufficiency that the difficulties of life can go past us without burdening us. So Paul is sufficient and he's content, not because he's independent, but because he's totally dependent upon Christ, as one author writes. So the Stoic would say, grin and bear it. The Christian would say, rejoice and let God bear it. And this really is a reflection in our worship. And it's actually worship will lead to contentment. That's why you want to worship whenever you possibly can. That's why you want to begin your day with worship. That's why you want to join us in corporate worship. That's why you want to join a fellowship. You're training yourself in contentment because you're training yourself to keep your eyes on God and his sufficiency and off of you and your burdens and your potential grumblings here. He says, I know how to be brought low and I know how to be abound. Like most of us, his contentment was learned uh, and it, it does not come naturally. So you have to learn it. But notice this principle here of being brought low and coming high. This goes back, doesn't it, to Philippians chapter 2. Christ, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality God, with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself like nothing, taking the form of a bondservant, being born in the likeness of men and being found on the human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Isn't that interesting? Christ was content on the cross. And he's content now as he sits at the right hand of God the Father running the universe. And we can be that way too. We, so by sharing in his humiliation, sharing his exaltation, we can be part of this. Uh, Macari helped me apply this with a little incident that happened this week. We had an opportunity to go to Presbytery meeting on Tuesday. Uh, Elder Routsong and Jack uh, went down, and Jack preached his, his middling sermon. Jack is halfway through seminary. Time flies, doesn't it? He's halfway through seminary, so he had to preach before Presbytery again, uh, and he just did a great job, as you can imagine. I even got a text from the, uh, the uh, chairman of the Candidates Credentials Committee, who is in a sense over Jack, and he said, man, that guy's got the gift of preaching, doesn't he? 
What a blessing to have that intro. Anyway, sidebar. But uh, so anyway, we're at this church, this ARP church down the Atlanta area, and we're sitting in the back because that's where the cushy chairs are. Uh, and Steve wanted the cushy chairs. Uh, and so we're sitting in the back, and there was this big Philippians banner. Of course, it got my attention because it was Philippians, right? Big, huge, multi-hundred dollar banner right across the top of the, the front of the church. And I was looking at it. And I was looking at it, and I was looking at it, and I couldn't quite tell, but it looked to me that they had spelled Philippians incorrectly. So Jack saw me pull up my camera because I wanted to look at it and open it to see if they they left a P out, you know. Not Philippians, but Philippians. This has got two Ps. So I took a picture of it, and Jack says, he says, you know, before you do anything about the picture, you might want to check our own banner. It's got two P's. It also has two L's. So isn't it funny? Because I was thinking, looking at this guy's, this church's banner, oh, those poor people. How humiliating to have spent hundreds of dollars on a banner, to have it up front for months, and to have incorrectly spelled Philippians. Do I tell them about this? Then I thought of how odd it is that the word Philippians is spelled incorrectly in every one of your Bibles. That's the way it is, isn't it? I call this God keeping you on a short leash. It just happens all the time. So I'm thinking, I'm feeling pretty good about our Philippian banner until I realize this thing's been sitting up here since June. Curse autocorrect, you know. That's the kind of thing that happens. But you know what? You can be content in both the exaltation and the, and the utter humiliation of misspelling Philippians. For the, I mean, like there's people in Russia right now looking at this, and they just didn't have the heart to say anything. Probably, it's a good thing I probably couldn't have handled it. Anyway, he says here, he, he goes on to say here, you know, there's this emphasize this whole principle of, of contentment here, and that we can be content in any and every circumstance. You know, this is a theme for Paul. It's a theme for Paul. It's amazing. Whenever Paul really emphasizes something, you need to listen because it's something we all struggle with, right? First Timothy tells Timothy, chapter 6. Now, there is great gain in godliness with contentment. Those two are connected together. For we brought nothing to the world, we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing covering... Uh, with this, we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall in temptation and a snare into many senseless and harmful desires. For the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil. There is great gain in godliness with contentment. Hebrews 13, 5. Keep your life free from the love of money. Be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you for forsake you. You know, it's so interesting because what we do, we have this conditional idea. When God lets me have a fully funded retirement plan, when God lets me pay off my mortgage, when God lets me pay off all these medical bills, when I finally have the car of my dreams on that, then I'm going to be contentment. No, content. No, you won't. It's actually, in some ways, Easier to be content when you don't have too much, because when you have more, you ought to have more responsibility. And with that comes an insecurity sometimes that you might lose what you have. So we're always kind of looking to the guy above us. How about this? Look at where you are. Look how good God is to you. Look how much he has blessed you. This is what Paul is trying to say here. So he's with any and every circumstance. There's no exceptions here. Don't be looking for a loophole because we sometimes think, well, you know what? 
My life's been so difficult, I have earned the right to grumble and complain and to not be content. Paul says, any and every circumstance. We have no right. Because again, what you're really doing is you're grumbling, complaining against God himself. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 12, For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. When I am weak, then I am strong. But he calls it a secret. He's learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger. That idea of secret is normally used in Greek writings to talk about the secret ceremonies of mystery religions. Uh, the things that go on behind the, 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 the closed doors of the Masonic Lodge, that, that kind of thing. But for us, the secret is learning to walk in holiness, learning, learning to worship God no matter what happens, learning to be content. He tells the Corinthians, to the present hour, we are hunger, we, we hunger and thirst. We're poorly dressed, buffeted and homeless. We labor working with our own hands. We have become and are like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. And as he's saying that, he's smiling. Because he knows his God, his God wills that at times. The secret is revealed, though, to us, to Christians. And this idea of abundance and need, again, sometimes it's easier to to, 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 to be content with need than it is with abundance. And he reminds the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 4, momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. That's, it's interesting. This is, if you're trained with adversity and you've been tested with, with many things, in some ways, this contentment comes because the, 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 the similar kinds of adversity that come, uh, come later on you can kind of, in the power of the Lord, say, been there, done that. Been there, done that. I'm not going to get uptight about this. I have faced worse before. So the very thing that we dread so often actually ends up being something that actually gives us more peace down the long run and more power to be contentment. So if you're going to learn the secret of contentment, you've got to recognize discontentment, right? So let me kind of give you just sort of, I came up with 10 signs of discontentment. You ready for the 10 signs of discontentment? Number one is self-pity. A Christian should never have a, any interest in self-pity. If all you got was heaven, man, have you ever gained. If you die naked and impoverished under a bridge somewhere, man, that's depressing. Anyway, and, but you go to heaven, you're a winner. You're a winner. There is no room for self-pity in the life of a Christian. Bitterness towards others or bitterness towards God. Bitterness in general. Bitterness will destroy a church. And, and it's hard for a bitter person to not advertise it in his facial expressions and everything he says. Because when you're bitter, you're basically holding a grudge against somebody. That same somebody God was probably using to grow you up, but you're stuck. You're, you're spinning in the mud because your wrath is upon that person instead of saying, thank you, God, for teaching me and teaching me to forgive because I've been forgiven much. Grumbling and complaining, which I've already mentioned, a negative outlook on everything. Everything's in the negative. Everything's down. Playing the victim. Does that ever happen in our culture? It's amazing. You know, they're now suing ammunition companies. Uh, instead of the making the, per the shooter the responsibility, it's now the, the person who provided the bullets or sold the bullets now because everybody's a victim. Uh, the blur, the distinction between needs and wants. I hate to tell you, a cell phone is a luxury item, or at least it was 20 years ago. 
And it's now a necessity. And this is what happens. This is, that's one of the beauties of the free enterprise system. What was once a luxury item, eventually enough people got, get it. Now everybody can have one. Uh, but, but what's really a need? What's really a want? And what you'll do is you'll groan for the, for the, uh, for the want, the desire, and you'll label it need. But it's amazing how little you can actually get away with. Ingratitude in general, greed, selfishness, and, and to a certain extent, anxiety and fear. Anxiety and fear. That's gonna, you, you're going to be tired, worn out because of all the difficulties you see coming in the future instead of trusting where the Lord is. <clears throat> as Stephen Lawson says, Paul wants you to do as he has done, to live above life's circumstances instead of living under them. And for some reason, we, 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 we almost want to get attention by being martyrs of life circumstances, that is not the victorious Christian life. That's not where you need to be. So then we have confidence in Christ. Verse 13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. How many of y'all have seen this painted across the gym wall? How many of y'all go to the gym? You know, it's on every Christian gym wall. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. What does it actually mean? Well, this idea of all things in the, in the Greek, it's actually in the emphatic position. So it would not normally read a, a literal translation would be all things I can do. So all things and I can do means I can have the power. I can have the resources. I can prevail. I can have effectiveness in this principle. This is a really big promise. And he doesn't really qualify it. I need to qualify it a little bit just so you don't take it out of context, but it's powerful. How does this happen? He tells the Ephesians, Ephesians 1.11. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things. There's our all things again. According to the counsel of his will. Or, as the Westminster Confession of Faith says, the decrees of God, in the decrees of God chapter 1, God from all eternity did by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will freely and unchangeably ordain whatsoever comes to pass. Whatsoever comes to pass. The good, the bad, and the ugly. Now, some of y'all take that as an opportunity to resent God because you're looking at what other people seem to be blessed with and what you appear not to be blessed with. And also, some, some of you may look at it and think, well, then I, why even try? I can do whatever I want to. God's going to do it. That's not the way it works. God uses you and your obedience to bring about good things. But he has foreordained whatsoever comes to pass. A great example of this is Esther, isn't it? When Mordecai, they uncover a plot to, go to, to kill all the Jews, and uh, Esther has to be able to tell the king, but she risked her life, uh, has to risk her life to be able to do so. And Uncle Mordecai tells her, and who knows whether you have obtained royalty for such a time as this. And because she had faith, she literally saved her people. Proverbs 16, 4 says this, the Lord has made everything for its purpose. Paul practiced what he preached in Romans 8, 28. For we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good to those who are called according to his purpose. So again, the, uh, the context is important here for this all things. Well, he really is talking about the all things he's talking about here in the spiritual nature here. It's a battle against the world, the flesh and the devil. It's a joy in the midst of the storm, being at peace in the midst of difficulty, that sort of thing. It does not necessarily mean that your child is going to overcome last year's city's champs in soccer. Uh, we've almost turned this verse into a meme. 
It's not that God doesn't care about your child, not that God doesn't care about uh, the city soccer match. Um, actually, soccer's a foreign sport. I'm not, no, he does. He, God cares about everything. But the, all things here are really the kind of spiritual victory you need. It's not a guarantee of, it's not a guarantee of a win, uh, but it's a guarantee that God is going to work everything together for the, by the counsel of his will for your good and for his glory. But the other thing here is that there's a there's a other's focus that has to happen here uh, over and against the stoic philosophy uh, that God is doing this in part for you to edify the church and for you to help others. Uh, you know, no man is an island. And when we try to be an island, we end up causing troubles. So our contentment can only be expressed in a lot of ways, in, in a sense, with with community here. And all things has to do with strengthening up the entire church here. And the reason why we can do this is because we have Christ in us. John 15 says, Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whatever, whoever abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For a part of me you can do nothing. So if you're going to bear fruit, you've got to understand the vine has given you the sap. And you've got to be content with that. Now, some of you are going to bear bananas. Some of you are going to bear uh, 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 um, Oh, cherries. I'm trying to think of another fruit, you know, apples, watermelon. You get the point. <laughs> you know, it's not all going to be the same. It's not going to be the same. Some of you have these little dry shrivel fruit. Why don't I drop that illustration? Now? But here's the other thing. Don't develop a bad attitude because you failed a test that you didn't study for. Don't use this as an excuse to blame God for things. Because God will, there's a, a principle of reaping and sowing, right? You spoil your kids rotten, they're likely to make you miserable. You, you don't pay your bills on time, guess what? Your power is going to go off. That's not a test from God, that's just you being stupid. I mean, can we be honest here? Life is hard, life is harder when you're stupid. So that don't use that as an opportunity to get mad at God for messing up your life because you did that and he's going to let you do that. He's going to let you suffer those consequences. But very often that's not the case. There, very often there are things that are outside our control, but nothing is outside of his control. That's why we can prevail in all things. And the prevailing here is not necessarily the win, but the win of the attitude, right? So... <clears throat> As we are going to struggle through life, this is not a guarantee that we're not going to have any trials and tribulations. As Steve Lawson says, God had only one son without sin, but he has no sons without sorrow. And then this, if we're talking about your examples here. Paul's an example here. The examples always end up in jail somehow. But uh, another great example, of course, is Joseph, right? Coat of many colors, Joseph there in Egypt. He, had, he was sold by his brothers into slavery. He rose up in Potiphar's house. He got framed by Potiphar's wife, got thrown in jail interpreted some dreams, got forgotten by the people that he interpreted the dreams for. All of a sudden, he's remembered. He comes back, ends up saving probably the entire Near East from starvation, but including the chosen people of God, because God's covenant promises are always kept. And there at the end, when the brothers thought, when dad dies, he's going to go out and kill us, because that's what they do sometimes in the Middle East. Vengeance after vengeance after vengeance after vengeance. Joseph, the godly Joseph, pulls them together and says, Do not fear, for I am in the place, am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about what many people should be kept alive as they are today. Can you imagine anything more evil than selling off your 
your brother into slavery? I, that some of you are tempted with that, but don't do it. That was just wicked. And all the other things that happened to him were wicked. And yet Joseph's like, I'm only on this side. Of, he had a good attitude during the time, but it's on the other side. Man, we would be starved to death if I hadn't been sold into slavery. So just know the hand of God was with me, even in your sin. So God will use other people's sins against you for your good and for his glory. Why? Well, 2 Corinthians 12. My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I'd rather boast about my weaknesses so the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weakness, with insults, with distress, with persecutions, with difficulties. For Christ's sake, when I am weak, then I am strong. So Paul, the misunderstood, betrayed, abused, attacked, maligned, imprisoned, impoverished Apostle Paul, waiting in chains for the verdict of Caesar of a capital crime of treason, is far freer than his guards, far happier than his enemies, far more joyful than the priest of Bacchus and far richer than Caesar ever dreamed to be because he possessed the rare jewel of Christian contentment. So can you. John MacArthur sums up this text, summarizing this text by saying this, a contented person is confident in God's providence, satisfied with little, independent from circumstances, strengthened by divine power and preoccupied with the well-being of others. May that be us. Father, I pray that you would help us. This is such an important lesson. It really is the key that unlocks so much joy that we're missing out of. And yet, Lord, it, we are going to be tempted to be discontented right after this service. Break through our unfaithful hearts. Break through our bitterness. Break through our grumbling attitude. Break through our negative disposition. We want to be like Joseph. We want to be like Esther. We want to be like Paul. And we're frustrated that we're not. Please, God, help us to discover the rare jewel of Christian contentment on our journey in joy. In Christ's name, amen.